1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS... In front of me is cheese loving commissioning editor Thea Lenaduzi. Thea, hello. Hello, oh, hello, hello. All well.
0: All <laughs> oh, well. Still hoping a purveyor of fine cheeses will pay attention to your <laughs> At <some point>. relentless <laughs> references some to my tourophilia.
1: Your what, tourophilia? Is that what it's called? Yeah. I did not say that. Well, how do you spell that?
0: I think that's how you pronounce it tourophilia, Yeah, T U R O and then Philia.
1: What's the etymology of that?
0: Tiros, Greek for cheese.
1: Is that Greek for cheese? Yes. Are you saying yes because neither one of us is I'm going to look I'm pretty sure up. it is. It makes sense if it is. <laughs> Turophilia. Turophilia. Oh. Another word I learned in the TLS, that's a good one, I'm going to keep that, and also Toby Lischdick's piece about Donald Trump had pavanine.
0: Pavanine, what's that then?
1: Peacock-like. It's the oh, adjective... Oh, pavone. Yeah, is that...
0: Pavone is a, is a peacock yeah. in Italian.
1: Yeah. It's an adjective of or pertaining to a peacock. Very good. There we go, don't say you don't learn anything. <laughs> Listening to this, you've been tweeting your locations while listening to this podcast. we only got time for three quickies. M. Thayer says that he or she listens in my car on the way to and from work in central northern New Jersey. Apparently, we always sound like we're having the best time.
0: There's so, yeah. <laughs> a very awkward silence
1: there. I, I think best is overstating it. I think good <laughs> or fine enjoyable even. not A
0: very nice time. No,
1: Yeah, I think best is overstating. <laughs> Hannah Tame <laughs> listens to us in the National Maritime Museum archive stores.
0: Hannah, what are you doing there?
1: I think that there's a story that needs to be told. <laughs> what, what are you doing in the archives of the National Maritime Museum and why are you not concentrating solely on those archives? <laughs> and Tom from the Bronx, New York, he emailed me, said, I don't tweet, but I listen while doing the dishes, sometimes losing myself so completely that I wash the same pot twice. <laughs> what? eloquent praise, that is. So hooray for Tom's Gleaming Pots. Tweet us your location if you like, at the TLS or get in touch however you choose. We do like hearing about it. This week, as part of our Russian special issue, Daniel Beer will tell us the fascinating tale of the Gulag at Solovki, a converted monastery known as the Paris of the Northern Concentration Camps, a place of brutality but also of resistant culture and ideas. Michael Keynes, known on this podcast as The Doctor, will be in the studio to explain the career of the little-known romantic William Gilbert. Well, at least I hope he's generally little known because I had never heard of him until I read this piece. Thea.
0: I had not. I thought I had for a fleeting moment and then I realised that I was thinking of, of a William Gilbert who died about 100 years before our current. Yeah, who William was that William Gilbert. Gilbert? The guy who twigged that a compass worked because the the world was magnetic.
1: Mm. We'll get to that because actually there are a lot of William famous William Gilberts who we'll talk a bit about, but we'll talk about the other one as well. And what you may very well ask is the cultural history of shoe shining. From Dickens to police squad, Lawrence Scott will be here to tell us. So, who on earth was William Gilbert? Robert Southey said he was a man of much information and much genius. Coleridge said he was a man of fine genius who had unfortunately received a few rays of supernatural light through a crack in his hubba story. It's a great phrase. Wordsworth quoted him in the excursion, so he was clearly a figure to be reckoned with. Born in 1763, he was the child of a slave owner who became a barrister and a Methodist preacher. He also had some sort of mental breakdown and composed the poem, The Hurricane, which so impressed Wordsworth. But he's not terribly well known to history. He's got no Wikipedia page, for example, unlike William Gilbert, the English 16th century astronomer. Or William Gilbert, the 19th century novelist and father of the Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan. Or even William Gilbert, the cobbler and rugby ballmaker. So clearly we need someone to tell us more. Thankfully we have our own man of fine genius, whose upper story occasionally shows glimmers of supernatural light. <laughs> as anyone who knows Michael will be <laughs> nodding vigorously to. Taylor says to Michael Keynes:
2: Michael, hello. Hello, thank you for letting me back in the studio.
1: How guilty... Should we feel for never having heard of William Gilbert?
2: Not in the slightest bit guilty. There's (laughs) many a specialist, I am told, in this period, in this literary period, who has not heard of William Gilbert. Had you heard of him before this book? Only very vaguely. I'd certainly not read The Hurricane, this rather astonishing poem.
1: Let's go back to the beginning. So who who was he? What were his origins? How did he end up writing a poem.
2: Well, it's a fantastically um, picaresque tale, as <laughs> you mentioned. You love the 18th century, don't you? I love the 18th century. <laughs> Let's go. Get in the time machine. Let's just go. This is such story, think I,
0: I would rather not. Yeah. You don't want to go,
2: <laughs> just not? because it smells a bit or yeah. something. Come on, yeah. you'd love it. Think of the food. Yeah. Okay, don't think of the food. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, bad, bad food, I imagine. Wasn't it? The, on the bad side of the 18th century, yeah. William Gilbert is the son, he's the youngest son of a slave owner in Antigua, and Things become knotted up straight away in their history because the plantation they own's got about 150 slaves. It's been in the family for a few generations, and then uh, William Gilbert's dad, Nathaniel, discovers Methodism, goes to meet John Wesley in England, gets a couple of his slaves baptized, comes back, clearly tries to change things. He's a kind of you know one of those, one of those. Let's put this very definitely in scare quotes, but a benevolence. Landowner, yeah. plantation yeah. owner, but not not wanting to give it up. But once didn't can... give it up. There's lots of reasons why he didn't give it up. I mean, partly let's call it. We can call it hypocrisy, absolutely. But there's lots of reasons why he didn't give it up. Times were very tough. There was drought. There were hurricanes, but he preaches Methodism and he establishes Methodism in the West Indies. He creates a Methodist society which has mainly black, but also white members. So historically, it's you know, it's a step. That's going on, but I think quite soon after Nathaniel Gilbert dies, William, at the age of 15, joins the Navy. He sees action in the American War of Independence. Here. Then he becomes, he gets, he's called to the bar and he fights a really long, protracted intense legal case and wins, and, and it's quite a significant case in its own Small way, it's kind of military case. But then he loses a case, and he loses his mind, and he is found throwing things out of the window. He's become obsessed with the Christian invocation to sell all the hast and distribute to the poor, okay. and so he ends up in an asylum. And that, it seems, is where he discovers the kind of esoteric writings that lead him towards writing the Hurricane.
0: And he's in Portsmouth at this point.
2: Yeah, I think it's in Portsmouth. Well, I mean, where else? I'm from Portsmouth. It's, Portsmouth. it's in Portsmouth. It's in Portsmouth that he goes mad. So there. But the asylum he ends up in is actually run by a Methodist and it's in Bristol. Okay. And Bristol is quite important for this this story. It's also where the... Sort of first romantic circle, as we'd see it, is just forming.
0: Yeah, so that's how his path came to cross with. Exactly,
2: he's in the right place uh, at the right time. Before we get onto the romantics, what does he start reading then? So he, his mind is, let me say,
1: might say malleable at this point. He's had a breakdown, yes, of some sort or another.
2: What does he start reading? What's the, what, what is the, the material he comes across? Well, it's interesting. I, mean, I should say first of all, we're talking about this because there's this fantastic uh, new study. of William Gilbert's The Hurricane that is both an edition of the poem and a sort of study of the period of a whole and it draws together these disparate elements in unexpected strange ways and that's why I to come back to your first question I don't think anyone needs to feel guilty about not having heard of this particular William Gilbert because there's been bits of work here and there by scholars of romanticism but really no one's no one's dug into this stuff at all. But the good thing about it is that although it's a, an academic book, you can also, thanks to the author, Paul Cheshire, yep. find pretty much all of it online on his own site. So, so it's this, very is interesting.
1: Called, this is William Gilbert and Esoteric Romanticism is the book.
2: That's right, Esoteric I, Romanticism, and, uh, which is a you know a careful, carefully chosen phrase sort of for reasons you'd have to find out if you read, read the book itself. But one thing he doesn't really get into is what Gilbert's been reading, what makes him into a poet. I mean, we can assume he's been reading the Bible, of course, and we know a lot about this 18th century tastes and general a lot of Milton knocking around in there, some Shakespeare, let's say, but also probably things we don't read so much nowadays like James Thompson's The Seasons and, and Ossian, so rather grand things, sort of bardic things. Oh, and that heads in towards romanticism. I think that's taking, as it is with all these other poets, you we know, much better-known romantic poets, the canonical romantic poets, I suppose, it's taking them in a certain direction. There's a kind of groundswell people are very much interested in in the same kind of verse. I think he's only really, as far as we know, wrote two Long poems, and both of them are written in rather slightly eccentric blank verse. So the long one's the Hurricane. The longer one is called a Solitary Effusion, and Effusion itself is a very Coleridgean word. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. Outpouring, and of outpouring of yeah. rhapsody. Yeah.
0: And, and formally, quite certainly, the Hurricane formally sounds quite quite ahead of its time. I mean, the, the notes are as much a part of the work as the work itself.
2: Yeah, it's a very strange thing that he ends up mixing with this Bristol crowd. So there's a publisher, Joseph Cottle, who's quite an interesting figure. There's Southey, there's Wordsworth, there's Coleridge, and they're all knocking around Bristol at sort of different times, or if not Bristol itself, they're all corresponding and they're going off in the different directions, as we know, poetically they're going in different directions. But Gilbert's obvious, the obvious uh, contemporary to talk about is Blake, He's doing similar things. And they're both influenced in a way by, by Swedenborg. It's not clear. You couldn't say, aha, they definitely knew one another. But there's this formative influence in the background. They're both interested in arcane matters. So Swedenborg would, would write about, it's, it's kind of apocrypha, is that it? Or is it's... Yeah, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of interest in seeing, uh, the, the, the other danger word beside esoteric is theosophy, yeah. which is liable to be misunderstood. It sort of mutates, doesn't it, as time, as time passes. But at this point, you can definitely say that theosophical as Gilbert and Blake and Swedenborg would have understood it. It's talking about sort of seeing the divine truths, the inner truths of the world, seeing mm-hmm. through material things to that. And also you can see that in the great sort of prophetic poems of Blake. And that's what's going on in the hurricane too.
0: Well, so he has like, and you can perhaps now if you sort of tell us about the hurricane, it will all kind of prove what I'm about to say, which is <laughs> that there seems to be, he seems to have this very total vision of the world, which is almost Blakeian in its oppositions.
2: Yeah, that's the really distinctive thing about about him, I think, and I think that's why he's definitely worth, at the l- very least, um, a glance. His prose works include writings for the Conjurers magazine, <laughs> uh, which seems to be a weird mixture of sort of magic tricks and prophecies and horoscopes. He does William Pitt's horoscope in the Conjurers magazine <laughs> and says, mm. I think he might have been an early starter, you know. All his stars point to him being an early starter. And he does Southey's horoscope, so he's clearly very into all that and makes a, you know, bit of an impact writing about that kind of thing but only for the Condorers magazine so in no way is is he a sort of household name or anything like that but the hurricane is published in 1796 and so he's been he's been in dialogue with coleridge who nicks a bit of the hurricane and publishes it in a completely different way in his own magazine published in in the same year perhaps they've all been talking about verse and how how the world works the his fellow poets are very struck by him and find him a bit odd. The really distinctive thing I think about The Hurricane is that while there are all these passages that, as I've just said, Coleridge could take out and say, this is a beautiful this is kind of a nature poem, there are other passages that show, and he's very keen to show this in really endless footnotes, that it's got a deeper meaning and that everything in it has a symbolic value. So the compass points, and this is very much in the in the kind of esoteric tradition, the points of the compass a line with four continents a line with four elements a line with four star signs so any hint in the poem of those Mm. is a kind of code so it's very much a symbolic poem at the same time because of his family background it's very vivid and I think interesting It's about a hurricane It's about a hurricane there is a very well dramatised storm and a shipwreck at the heart of it so you can read it and enjoy it in at least those two ways Should, Should we hear a little bit?
1: Can you read a little bit? Yeah, I'll
2: definitely read a little bit if you'd like to, hear. Yeah,
1: I'd like to. I'd like to. Yeah, I would like to hear it. Well,
2: I, I can definitely read you the part where there's a great part where the weather changes, and I think that's quite. That can just be enjoyed for the kind of descriptive value, such as it is. But just to give you a little idea of the kind of trouble he gets into, or he gets the reader into, when he's trying to explain his great system, his sort of belief in the world, <laughs> oh, he'll say things on the first page, or the first sort of passage or so, like uh, he's talking about Antigua, or he's, he's talking about the, the, that sort of part of the world. He said, Here Columbus, with the din of war, broke the mild concords of the mermaid shell, who mild at evening in the glassy wave... Joined with the genii of the neighbour shores. Okay, you're already a bit lost. You're not quite sure what's going on. And sure enough, there's been a footnote explaining the mermaid connection. And then further on, he says, Hell's dread discords from dark Europe broke. Then the mermaid to her deeps shot rapid. Another footnote explaining all this. And of course, it's all to do with things that the American Revolution. French Revolution.
1: It sounds a bit Miltonic. I can see it's, it. I, you can I, hear that, I, I can can't hear you? hear a little bit of this. And sort of a
2: touch of Blake maybe in there. You can see that he's, so he's, a, he's, not, he's not exactly a missing link, but there's, there's something in there that I think uh, aligns him with that kind of poetry. Is it common in the period to, to, to do footnotes to your own poems? I think there's a name for this. It's called, uh, which I'm going to mispronounce, Prosimetry. Yeah. Somebody can say somebody Plos- clever can prosimet. What Plos- do you reckon? You're the, you're I don't know. No idea. Yeah. That, just <laughs> sounds, that sounds just natural. Said. In other words, knows. it's a bit of both. You know, <laughs> yeah. we tend to think. Yeah. Oh, we tend to think. You know, this is a poem. This is a work of prose. Well, there's this whole line of people. Of course, who don't really see that. There's a great distinction, and, and the two work in tandem. So Paul Cheshire in this edition really argues the case that you need both. So there's a lot of flicking backwards and forwards. Not least because. Paul Cheshire has got his own notes. I was going to say, so, footnotes to <laughs> the footnotes. Yeah. Yes, there are footnotes to the footnotes. And I the footnotes it. are really naughty and need explaining I love, a, foot, I love and, a footnote. So there we one, are. You're, one you're one totally of the footnotes
0: footnote. to the footnotes, is that where we, where we hear that, in fact, these mermaids that you've just referred to are, in fact, he called them ugly mermaids or something and they might just have been manatees.
2: That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's Columbus and of course... That's a, there's a, that's a tradition of that though, that the manatees were mermaids. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know
0: that. Yeah, that's, that's a, like, I a, mean, they would be very ugly mermaids. They would.
1: <laughs> I think it's more tribute to what happens if you're a sailor for six months <laughs> yeah. on board a ship yeah. and then everything starts to look
2: like women. And William Gilbert's been a sailor, <laughs> so do. I think he can say, so, look, there's a mermaid. Hello. Yeah. Anyway, this is a passage that it was completely different and, and needs really no footnotes. I'll only say that he mentions a cocoa grove. It's nothing to do with chocolate. He means coconut palms. OK. Uh, because we're in Antigua. We're in Antigua. Go For four long days, a calm through nature reigned, a calm as dead as ever struck the deep, as ever marked the silent air with awe or stilled the leaf high trembling on the bough. The fifth, at eve, to my accustomed haunt along the shadow of a cocoa grove, down to the beach I strolled. The setting sun was dyed with crimson, and the full-orbed moon that palely rose above the dusky arch was deeply burred. Settled, increasing, black, with jagged clouds voluminous and deep, scudded along the northern verge of ocean, and a long labouring swell hove the dark billow, lifeless on the shore, while adverse clouds in dark battalia swiftly met in air just where the horizon bends to meet the wave within the farthest reach of human ken a sail appeared the mild ray far beaming from the western sun glanced on her canvas and beheld it spread before the rising breeze the rising breeze far from the northward moved ruffling along and blackened as it came the affrighted plover from its blast retired the lizard nestled in the watchman's hut and heavy awful gloom poured deepening on Soon, raining darkness or creation drew the deep black curtain of involving night, the tempest thickened, and the dark wind howled increasing horrors and sublimer blasts, heavy the deep-hung atmosphere along. Retired as soon as straws around me felt the wind, I, hence, enjoyed in silent peace the rending gale, but ever and anon, some crash of trees or noise of swift destruction met my ear. Soon the expected signals of distress rolled through the heavy storm. The wind almost suppressed the deep-mouthed sound it bore. Reiterate, at rapid intervals, the guns were heard, and oft times joined the thunder. The firing ceased. The aggravated storm rode wide and unrivaled through the midnight air. All else was silence.
0: Oh, trembling leaves.
2: Trembling leaves. So he goes in about 40 lines from, it's calm, I can have a stroll along the beach too. And I think <laughs> the, the details about the, the sail is, yeah. is a little bit, where he's, he's just drawing on his knowledge of mm. exactly what that would look like. So what happens to him? It's... Good, you should ask that. Only this summer. <laughs> breaking only news. This, this is breaking news in the world of esoteric romanticism studies. William Gilbert studies, which, as we've discussed, is a small industry. Exactly. His friends, so Southie and co, didn't know what happened to him after the 1790s. They they just assumed he emigrated for various reasons. They thought he might have gone to, to Africa. But in fact, we now know, only this summer it was discovered that he ended up in Georgia. He felt... I quote, disgusted with the politics of the English government, not the first or last time that's happened. <laughs> and so he emigrated to the States. Uh, he probably wrote more. He died in about 18, he uh, died in 1824, I should say. And apparently at the time he was going to reissue The Hurricane. So who knows, maybe we've lost some marvellous, mature revision in the way Wordsworth got to revisit his earlier work. William Gilbert didn't quite. But he, may, re- he, may, re- may, he may, the- may have written it. And the, ob- the obituary is being discovered, so who knows, maybe more lies out there. William Gilbert, watch this space. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew?
1: Michael Michael Keynes did. Michael, (laughs) the doctor. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort Blanketed in thick pine forests dotted with lakes and crisscrossed by waterways, the 134-square-mile archipelago of Russia's Solovetsky Islands is located in the White Sea on the same latitude as Iceland. At the heart of this serene image, which opens a piece by Daniel Beer in this week's TLS, sits a striking monastery surrounded by massive walls over the tops of which poke onion domes of various sizes – This is the Solovki Monastery, founded in 1429 by a couple of monks, who valued a life of fishing, farming and prayer. But the spiritual tranquillity the monks strove to cultivate gave way, relatively quickly, to imprisonment and violence. When, in 1554, Ivan the Terrible sent the first of a succession of prisoners to the monastery, it was a shadow of things to come. The Revolution of 1917 provided a final push in this transition from place of worship to place of punishment, and the monastery became the first of the Soviet Union's many forced labor camps, and yet, as a study by Andrea Gulotta, "Intellectual Life and Literature at Solovky, 1923 to 1930," shows, the prison also created the circumstances for its own, at least partial, undoing. A printing press. Daniel Beer is on the line to explain. Hi, Daniel.
3: Hi, hi. Hello. Thank so. You for having me.
0: My pleasure. So, our pleasure, I should say. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's very fellow uh, well, spirited yes. of you. Well done. Um,
0: this story starts properly on March the 8th, 1923, when the monastery became the first camp of its kind. Can you sketch the, the kind of the founding principles? Who were the first inmates? What kind of work did they do?
3: So, the the Bolsheviks are sort of on the lookout for places, sort of existing facilities that they can rapidly convert into prison camps to kind of cope with the hundreds of thousands of prisoners and former refugees POWs and so on who've been sort of thrown up by the by the revolution and the civil war and Salafki, so so they they develop a kind of preference for monasteries you know these are Obviously, encased in heavy walls, they can easily be guarded. They have established networks of of supply. Individual cells that can be converted from you know from use by by monks to to use by prisoners, and they are also they prize the fact that the monastery is located in such a remote location. So they have a very strong desire to isolate and contain. Elements within the Soviet population, either because of their criminal activity or, in the case of many of the Salafki prisoners, because of their ideological commitments, they pose a threat to, you know, sort of wider. Soviet society. So when the camp is founded in March 23, there are a few thousand inmates, and a particular contingent of them are those who have been incarcerated basically for their political views. Uh, So some of them are the members of other socialist parties, socialist revolutionaries, Mensheviks. Some of them have been temporarily allied with the white armies during the Civil War. And these politicals, as they're called, form a kind of distinct group within prisoners on the island. So they're actually treated better on the whole than the other inmates. They are exempt from penal labour. And in the 1920s, they're basically there as a way of containing them and of sort of isolating their their influences from wider Soviet society.
0: And so this is how the printing press came to be about. If they were freed of the daily labour, they could dedicate themselves to the creative sides.
3: Yes so so one of the arguments that uh, Gulott makes in in the book is that the the regime does Seen to have, and actually it's kind of, I think it is an enduring commitment, albeit on paper, to the idea of rehabilitation and reform within the Soviet penal system. So the establishment of a a press within the camp is seen as a way of promoting the rehabilitation of these prisoners and their ultimate sort of reintegration into Soviet society. And it also serves, so by the middle of the 1920s, when sort of stories of Bolshevik brutality are are beginning to leak out in the emigre press, and the Bolsheviks are engaged in a kind of an international struggle for legitimacy, the camp press becomes a way of showcasing the kind of humanity of the regime that, you know, this is a far cry from the, you know, from the czarist era labor camps. These facilities are effectively corrective colonies in which people are given the opportunity to kind of ideologically adjust to the demands of the new regime.
1: And yet, though, you'd argue that this was the very first Gulag camp and some of the mistreatment of prisoners, some of the idea of prisoners having to f- be forced to pay for their own keep, you know, these things had to become self-sufficient, which we would see much later on in the sort of Stalinist purges, that the roots were set up in this, this camp to begin with at the same time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the plight of regular prisoners is is far more arduous. And yeah, this this basically becomes a kind of laboratory of the gulag as it will establish itself, you know, in in Solzhenitsyn's celebrated, if slightly overused metaphor, of the archipelago in the 1930s. So, So the camp, the kinds of techniques used to squeeze every last drop of labor from prisoners' bodies and tying rations to output these are policies that are trialed within the Salafki labor camp over the course of the 19th century pioneered actually by one of the the former prisoners a certain Naftali Frenkel, who sort of from the you know having been a convict in the camp sort of makes an appeal to the authorities that he can show them how to make penal labour self-sustaining it will pay for itself and it will increase productivity and thereby make an overall contribution to you know the sort of the industrialization the modernization of the country but so, so
1: at the same time so this is a, a camp but what effect is there on the literature i suppose because is this literature or artistic output that is compromised because it's being allowed by the regime or is it subtly undermining the regime is it ironizing the regime what sort of Artistic output is possible in these type of circumstances.
3: I mean, this is the heart of the story that Gulotta tells, and it's a very, it's a very sort of nuanced picture. I think the idea initially, sort of rather naively, is that these prisoners will be given an opportunity to kind of sing the praises of the camp and to sort of show that they are becoming, you know, ideological converts to the revolution. But what emerges quite quickly in the pages of the camp journals is that prisoners, the the so, so many of these are individuals who have established kind of writing careers. They're sort of minor poets, they're minor playwrights, they're sort of steeped in the kind of literary culture of of late imperial Russia. And they, they quickly show an ability to write in a way which is ostensibly, and I think Gulotta calls it, locus fidelitatis. So they they make sufficient ideological nods to the demands of the regime, but actually beneath or sort of in between the lines, their poetry is actually dwelling on a, on the sense of kind of trauma, a sort of, a, you know, a, a kind of grieving over the loss of the pre-revolutionary world, and increasingly over the course of the 1920s, sort of rising, a rising sense of outrage at the brutality of the camp itself and of of the way in which the camp sort of reflects the Soviet regime. In the story that uh, Gulotta tells, they move from initially kind of gently ironical texts which are slightly subversive of the official ideology surrounding the camp. So by the end of the decade, they basically go for broke and they are writing texts that are deeply satirical and are kind of openly confronting the horrors of the camp in ways that, that are far less difficult to confuse with you know the kind of the official official line of the party so from the perspective of the prisoners one can understand that i think what's more intriguing in gorse's account is why the camp authorities themselves actually tolerate this
0: there's the point that the library has um it sort of prided itself on having a collection of officially censored books
3: Yes, exactly. So I think that there are a number of reasons for this. So the so there's one particular individual in this story. He's a, actually a Latvian Eichmanns who sort of emerges as an unlikely defender of artistic freedom within the camp. And Eichmanns, in his in his sort of tussles with other bureaucrats of a more sort of ideologically purist disposition, he's basically arguing that. This pre-revolutionary intelligentsia needs to be currently given the opportunity to kind of express itself, because actually it's, it's providing the tools for the emergence of a proper, thoroughly Sovietized intelligentsia, which will eventually sort of take its place. You know, so their days are numbered, but actually they have talents which we still need to to kind of promote and celebrate. From other books that I've read, in fact, other books that I've reviewed for the, for the TLS about you know, there's one, a diary of a gulag prison guard, Ivan Chistyakov. The guards themselves are, of course, they're not prisoners, but they find themselves in these utterly desolate yeah. places. They don't want to be there either. They kind of long to get, you know, up sort of to get reassigned back to Moscow or a metropolitan centre. And of course, I think for the guards, too, the, the camp journals, the theatre, the library are all very welcome sources of entertainment and, you know, kind of intellectual and cultural stimulation in otherwise an extremely barren place.
1: So can you argue that almost as the 20s progressed, the safest place you could be writing poetry in Russia was a prison?
3: Well, that's the kind of paradox that that sort of Golota, I think, is presenting. That actually, I mean, there was certainly one, one year where it was the safest place where you could publish uh, writing that was clearly stylistically, but also ideologically, at odds with official culture. You know, there is this astonishing contradiction at the heart of this story that sort of, you know, individuals who have been incarcerated precisely for their, you know, for their lack of kind of ideological fealty to the regime, end up being able to, you know, not only write, because of course, you know, other people are writing stuff, but it's then it then circulates. It's hidden away in in sort of you know under the mattress, or it, it circulates among close friends. It's only at uh, Solvay that these people are actually able to formally have their work published. It's true that this proves to be a very short-lived experience, right? So they are the the journals are shut down by 1930. And most of these individuals are then transferred from Salafki to work on the, you know, on the great sort of industrialising projects of the first five-year plans, basically as slave labourers. And most of them are executed by the mid to late 1930s because they have, you know, they obviously have black marks against their names. Their files are kind of flagged as unreliable or suspect elements. And they quickly get sort of rebranded as, um, you know, spies and wreckers in the, in the witch hunt um, of uh, Stalin's great terror. Daniel, it's it's a
1: really interesting story. Thank you so much for for sharing it with us.
0: It's a shame because, again, we've run out of time, haven't we, and we didn't get to ask him about About Maxim Maxim Gorky's visit. (laughs) Go on,
1: explain the Maxim (laughs) Gorky. It's a very good story. Well,
0: so Gorky was in exile at the time, in Capri just off Italy, another island, in fact, so he obviously was desperate to stay uh, in, in that sort of setup. He went from there on a visit to this monastery that we've been talking about, and the authorities were keen to give him a guided tour so that he could see the good work that was being done there. And the prisoners, in the meantime, spent every energy that they could in trying to smuggle notes into his pockets, and he was taken on a tour of the library, and several of the prisoners sat around, Daniel says, ostentatiously reading their newspapers upside down. Gorky helpfully turned one the right way up.
1: The point of this is he didn't want to see it, did he? He
0: didn't want to see it, and in fact then he wrote a glowing um, piece about how great the work being done was. His uh, reputation has never really recovered. His trip enough.
1: advisor for Sir Slavky,
0: <laughs> Five, five stars. Five
1: stars, it's all fine. I don't know about you, but I've never used a shoe shine in my life, you?
0: no i I once had a lot of fun buffing all my shoes on the hotel ones,
1: oh, yeah. oh, the, the machine, yeah,
0: yeah, the machine Or never never human
1: never been a human me neither <laughs> I think it's probably because i I wear trainers all the time, but it does also seem unpleasantly hierarchical. The setup, as Lawrence Scott writes this week, uncomfortably supplicatory, which I think's right, but unlike me, Lawrence Scott didn't just blithely dismiss the phenomenon, no, he investigated it, thought about it and wrote about the time shoe shiners have entered our collective imagination. He's on the line to tell us more. Lawrence, hello.
4: Hello there, how are you?
1: Very good. What got you started on this subject? An image struck you, didn't you? you were walking along and, and you saw it.
4: Yeah, I was just strolling along. I teach American students who are abroad for semesters at a time, and we often go on literary-based Tours around Central London, like Virginia Woolf themed or Dickens themed, and I'm always saying, you know, pay attention to the streets, see what's interesting, what mood strikes you. So I've sort of trained myself into looking for oddities. And I walked by the shoe shine stand and noticed that, not very unusually, the client in the chair was on his mobile, sort of ignoring the shoe shiner, but that the shoe shiner himself had a Bluetooth earpiece on and was chatting away to someone else. And so since, you know, the two books I've written have been about sort of the way digital technologies are changing us, I thought, hmm, that's, there's something going on there. Why is this important? Why is this interesting? And what I get a lot from sort of my background in teaching literature is that, you know, if you read the 19th century novel, they were always trying to categorize people on the street and classify them and make types out of people. So I was thinking, what would, what does the image of the Bluetooth shoe shiner say about you know the early 21st century and then the piece really went from there
1: we'll get to the 21st century eventually but you take us back to 19th century paris don't you as a as an early example of a shoe shiner entering culture
4: yeah i mean i i didn't know this before i started writing it but i was i got a bit of a tingle up the spine when i discovered that the earliest daguerreotype that's been uncovered in was in paris in the 1830s i believe and it was um the first humans in it were a shoeshiner and his client in the chair. And there was a very lovely practical reason for this, which was that the exposure times of the early daguerreotypes were so long that any movement or any people or any crowd that there had been would have sort of disappeared, sort of dissolved. You see this in a lot of 19th century daguerreotypes, but the shoeshiner remained as this sort of fixed point. And I was really jazzed by that because I thought it would work brilliantly for the piece. It just seemed to represent everything about the shoeshiner as being fixed in one spot and the city sort of flowing around them and telling them stories and they gather information that way. And I just thought there was no more potent image of sort of 19th century street life or how the 19th century thought about its people than that image of the shoeshiner.
0: And so we have in your piece you you, you continue this this idea of the shoe shine as a symbol as, as as this fixed point for information as you say and 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 you have a series of, of times in which people would come to him and and how that would sort of play out people would go to him for information and the story would continue from there
4: yeah very much so and often there's lots of different examples but one trend that I really noticed was that the shoe was often conflated with almost like a stockbroker which was a funny particularity that it wasn't just sort of any kind of noise to be this idea in the comic imagination of the 19th century that they were somehow involved in sort of the burgeoning sort of global capitalist market so there's a children's story called ragged dick from 1868 by an author called horatio alger jr and in that the young bootblack in new york dick always makes references to the stocks that he has in the Erie Railroad as sort of a joke. You know, there's, there's obviously sort of a rags to riches irony about this whole thing. But this sort of image replicates elsewhere. In Punch magazine, for instance, you can see jokes about two sort of cockney shiners discussing stocks and saying, oh, one, one says I'll have to liquidate my holdings in this stock or whatever. And then in the early, I guess, around this time, a bit later on, there's the apocryphal tale that JFK's. Father knew to get out of the all his, you know, get rid of his stock positions right before the crash in '29 uh, because a shoe shiner had given him stock advice. So I was really intrigued by this sort of particular obsession that somehow the secrets of capitalism were being held by the shoe shiner. But more generally, they were seen often in, in novels of the 19th century. They're seen as sort of holders of secrets. They seem to be able to understand the maze of stories that the the new metropolitan urban context of that century seemed to throw up so a bit like the detective who is a consoling figure because he could sort of hold all the mysteries of the city in his mind and and unweave the various strands and tell a new coherent story the shoeshiner seemed to be a sort of a point where the secrets of the city sort of converged Mm-hmm. I thought that was sort of striking then when you compare that to the daguerreotype image of this sort of stable figure who's sort of holding everything together when modernity is sort of dissolving and evaporating. A the-
0: sort of metropolitan oracle. And there's a moral dimension as well.
4: Yeah, well, I think that there's a sense that it wasn't really just a shoeshine. There's other, there's other young children like that. I think that's one of the morals of the image of that time was that it was sort of a combination of childish sort of knowingness and this strange sort of expertise of a very sort of jaded cynical street life so in dickens's bleak house it's not the shoe shiner, but it's the street sweeper joe who's yeah. always sort of at the heart of the mystery and being you know asked by detectives to tell what you know so there's something about the morality of childhood i think about something about conflating the innocence with a weird sort of street experience
1: is there an element that this is patronizing or is this often avoided where Because it's kind of saying, here is a lower class person who you wouldn't Mm -hmm. expect to be clever. Look, they're clever. Or actually, is it the opposite of that? Recognising that if you survive the streets of 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 these new cities, you must have something, a sense of cleverness and ability that's not measured by education. It's measured by street smarts.
4: Yeah, I think it's the latter. You know, I think there is there's always uneasy class dynamics. To this, but even the shoe shine stand itself was associated with class very strongly. So there was again punch in the 1830s to a series of cartoons all based around the idea of lower middle class sort of young clerks or whatever on the fringes of respectability, almost pretending to be better than they were by applying, you know, a, a, having the shoe shiner apply a thin sort of veneer of polish and giving them a sort of false airs. So there is there was total snobbery, inverse snobbery and class dynamics involved in the whole structure of the little booth with its polish and and the idea of dissimulation and deception. And a lot of the stories of shoeshineers themselves were seen as quite deceptive and could sometimes spread what we'd call now fake news. You know, Dick in in the Ragged Dick stories sells a fake story that Queen Victoria has been assassinated. But I think overall, given all these sort of class dynamics in play, I think it it is a loving portrait and a recognition that the street does provide you with very particular type of insight and wisdom and a way of being able to read situations cannily with great acuity
1: shall we talk about police squad uh, briefly (laughs) because this is in your piece police squad was a sitcom in america but it spawned the naked gun movies which were fairly big when i was a kid and that naked gun is called tales from the police squad i think but police squad in itself was a detective sitcom and in it well perhaps you explain what happens and then we'll hear a little bit lawrence
4: okay so yeah in police squad leslie nielsen sort of plays this detective investigator figure and there's always this gag in, in every episode of the short-lived sitcom from the early 80s in which he goes to visit his friend, Shoeshine Johnny, who isn't a little boy in this. He's like a middle-aged guy, not that different in age from Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen's character will mutter to him and say, you know, Johnny, what's the word on the street? And he'll get some information about the latest crime. And Johnny always knows what's what. But he'll only, of course, give up his information with a bit of if there's a bit of cash exchange. Well, let's
1: let's hear the gag because there's okay, a, a the gag, gag then follows.
4: What's the word in the street, Johnny? I don't know. I hear a lot of things. Pick a topic.
1: Do you know anything about the double killings at the Acme Credit Union? You're barking up the wrong tree with us, Ralph, twice. He's a good family man and makes a decent living. Now, Sally Decker, that's another story. She used to be Joe Serlo's girl until she got involved in the numbers. Before you knew it, she was up to her pretty little neck in penny ante buncle scams. Where do I locate this sirlo? He's working at this address. Thanks, Johnny.
2: What do you know about life after death? I wouldn't know anything about it.
1: You talk an existential being or anthropomorphic deity. In this case, it was a priest, but it's another expert comes up and asks for advice, is the, is the gag, basically. So this guy is a, a font of universal wisdom.
4: Yeah, he sort of, you know, he'll talk, you know, a surgeon will come up and say, you know, I have this patient. What would you recommend? And then Johnny will dispense some very technical vocabulary about how to do this complicated operation and which veins not to clip etc et yeah cetera. he says
1: uh Johnny johnny's advice about a bypass when the patient has a, his- a history of sinus bradycardia johnny maintains that he wouldn't know anything about it but his memory is refreshed by cash and he says do a midline thoracotomy strip the saphenous vein be careful not to puncture the myocardium. It is funny.
4: It's so brilliant.
1: I mean, in some ways, this is don't judge a book by a cover. It's cover, isn't it? Effectively, don't snoot down to people who are in a service industry because it's no reflection on their intelligence.
4: Exactly that, and it's something about. I think it's something about the intimacy of the booth itself or the stand. It is supplicatory for the shoe shiner. There's a strange vulnerability for the client as well and there's something quite infantilizing about being in that seat as well and sort of being looked after after all we can all shine our own shoes you know so there's something a bit pathetic running under the idea of going to get your shoes shined to begin with and maybe some of that intimacy of that vulnerability comes out in like what do I do now there's quite a parental relationship that Emerges where you know, I, I, you know, you've got to help me with this.
0: Oh, and as well, there's the level, the level of scrutiny that the client is being subjected to. Because you know, there's that line: you can tell a lot about a man by his shoes. I wonder if that's
1: yeah, how he shines his shoes.
0: No, about his. Sho- you is... can tell a lot about a man by his shoes. I, I don't think. See it is. How he shines his shoes. does not
1: Sherlock Holmes say that? Like, I was
0: trying to think about Sherlock. I was trying to remember whether there was something in Sherlock Holmes about shoe shiners, and I mean there must be, because it's so of that uh, world.
4: Yeah. I don't know anything offhand, but that, I mean, the way that the shoeshiners read people in these stories at the, the same time is so like Sherlock Holmes, you know, the way Sherlock will be like, oh, I can tell by the way the mud is splattered on your yeah. browser that you took this type of carriage. Those shoe shiner characters have that same sort of thing. I think you're right. The shoes become this little mini archival database of clues for them to judge people's characters. So, yeah, the clients are exposed by the shoeshiners, and I think the... The dynamics between them are really interesting.
1: They're very anti-modern, are they not? Because I think now we shun physical connection because we're connected to the level of technology. Is Shoe signing an example of the opposite of modernity? Because you you saw this guy with his Bluetooth, but actually, mm-hmm. generally speaking, it's a service that feels very non-modern. A city, you quote in Sinclair, talking about people no longer move around in the city, but above the city, they're floating on their devices. And a shoe shiner is a physical interaction of the sort we generally shun now.
4: Yeah, I know. And I, that was part of the tension of that image that I saw with the Bluetooth shoe shiner, which was, it is such a rare sort of moment of intimate exchange. It is hard to get away from because there's sort of, your bodies are touching, you know, pretty much through a brush, but they might be holding your leg behind the ankle. So there is a real tactile communion between client and shoe shiner that does feel really non-digital. That's why I think, that the image of the two people who are involved in this exchange being on digital devices just to sort of get out of there to separate themselves from that is what felt modern. You know, we've all been in elevators, we've all I've seen people at the checkout. You know, but this is sort of a cliched story at this point, but sort of almost just logging into their phones, just having time to put their password in to avoid talking to the cashier. Yeah, I do that so. There was something about that. And I I hope it came through clearly in the piece as well that I didn't sort of judge the shoeshiner for wanting some digital restraint. No, but in fact,
1: we should just finish the story here because the shoeshiner on the Bluetooth isn't the traditional shoeshine, he's the boss.
4: He is, yeah, yeah. So I went to visit this stand because I thought I'd be a good journalist and go not just sort of pontificate and project (laughs) 19th century values onto this modern situation, (laughs) but go and talk to the people. And I, I tried to find the Bluetooth guy, but he wasn't there. So I went to his colleague and then asked about the shoe shiner who had the Bluetooth. And he said, oh, that's the boss. He can do what he likes. And and then I talked to this shoe shiner about tons of things about his life, where he'd sort of started off from how it was doing shoe shining. But then I said, do you ever use Bluetooth or anything like that? And he said, I'm not allowed to. I can't use my phone while I'm working. And then he quite happily showed me, he said, look, above, there's a couple of cameras on us right now. And he said the boss can see us whenever we're working. And I thought that was given, you know, the whole context we've been talking about, that was a new sort of level of surveillance. And how does a shoe shiner be a, a node of covert exchange if they're being watched all the time remotely? Mm. So to me, this seemed like a new digital mutation of a really old sort of urban trope. The bottom line is technology as ever ruins everything
0: well modernity closes up another chink through which we might have espied the old world
4: <laughs> i like all of those conclusions <laughs> that was pretty apt
0: i think Lawrence scott thank you very much indeed
4: thank you
1: that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Lawrence scott daniel beer and the doctor michael Keynes. get subscribing to the tls and never mission issue never miss an issue miss an issue that shouldn't be that difficult to say miss an issue this one has all sorts (laughs) of gems in it it really does next week we might as we're approaching christmas talk about god but we might thea We, we might not we might not talk about god until then from thea and from me goodbye